Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, January 13th, 2020. This is episode 2,579 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a Monday. That means it's time for a listener feedback show. And it's Monday, so like, welcome to Monday. Monday seems to be the day that a lot of people hate the most, because I think it symbolizes the fact that most people are not really free to live their lives the way that they want to, and it's when we go back to work. Um, you know, me, I, I live the life that I could, you know, I could only have come up with in my dreams 20 years ago, doing a podcast for a living, uh, not having to leave the house unless I want to go somewhere, and having a lot of control over it. But Monday still does mean back to the things that must be done versus uh, specifically the things that I feel like doing at the moment. So even when you get a lot more freedom, Monday still has some level of uh, consequence in our, our, our lives and our world today uh, that isn't always what's, what you like. But what it makes me think of, I saw a picture recently, it was a shark swimming in the ocean, you know, and looking all sharky with his teeth showing and stuff. Because, you know, a picture of a shark without his teeth showing is just never as impressive as one that has it. And it said, you know, sharks don't complain about Monday. They're out biting, biting stuff and doing shark shit. Be like the shark, basically, you know. And so hopefully this show helps you have a little bit more of that. Even when it's a Monday, we give you things to think about, things to dream about, things to work on in your life, uh, a better understanding of the world that you live in than you're ever going to get from the mainstream media news source. And we do that with very little news, but uh, certainly a look into current events at times and understanding where things are. So I've got a bunch of stuff for you today. Uh, we're going to start out with a question from Josh, who asked a question last week on building a Facebook group uh, for the purpose of building social media capital, for building a business, building a brand, what have you. And this was an interesting question. He said, I noticed that the regenerative agriculture group that you, you, you built over the years um, is a public group, meaning people can read and look and see anything they want without being a member. If they want to post, they have to join. Well, why do you do that? Well, that's a great question. And I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you a gotcha that you need to look at when you're building a group, because there is a point in time, and I don't remember exactly what it is, but there's a point in time where Facebook says, this group shall be what this group is forever, and thou shalt not change it. I don't like that, but it's the truth, and it's something we need to think about when we're making the decision before we hit kind of terminal mass, building that brand or that group or whatever it is on that platform. Um, I got a question on dispatching a deer that has been hit by a car when you can't carry a firearm. This individual, you know, is on the road a lot uh, during work and by his employment contract can't carry while he's working. I find that to be ridiculous, but I understand it and it is something we have to deal with. And I'll give you uh, a little bit of thought on that. Um, guys, I had a question for me on working with four acres that is a blank slate. I'm going to give more general advice with that than specific to this guy's situation because I think there's a lot of people that are coming up on that. And when we get a big hunk of land, there is a great potential for type 1 errors. A type 1 error is a, is an error that you regret almost from the moment you complete the action forever, right? And it can be, that's an extreme version 
Um, but a lot of Type 1 errors, you know, even though they can be reversed, it takes a lot to reverse them, and there's a lot that got sunk. There's a sunken cost. And it's easy to do when you get a big piece of land for the first time. So we're going to talk about avoiding that. Uh, question on storing ammo long term. I'm going to give you two antidotes as to why I just don't make a big deal out of this. I just don't, and I don't think you should either, and I think they'll be pretty compelling for you if you've not heard me talk about them before. I have a question from an anarchist. He's struggling with giving 100% up on the political system, i.e. voting. He wants some of my advice on that, and my advice is going to be if you really don't want to give it up, don't. But we'll have some thoughts that expand on that. Um, sod busting or not with new raised bed gardens. Lots of people planning their raised bed garden installations for the coming uh, growing season right now. Um, should, do you need to actually remove the grass, or can you just throw everything on top of it? Well, it depends, and we're going to talk about what it depends on, what the consequences are if you don't get the it depends right and make the wrong decision. We could definitely put that into the category of type 1 errors for some of you. And then we have a new type of home-based school called Prenda. I think this is really cool. I'm going to play you a video off of their site talking about it a little bit, and uh, we'll wrap up from there. I also have a really cool quote of the day, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is ReadyMadeResources.com. ReadyMade Resources is, is it's just an awesome company, and the name of the company is what it is, right? It's, it's, if they do what they say, and they say what they do. Ready-made resources, all the resources you need for your prepping and your homesteading. Uh, ready-made, ready to go, point-click and buy on their website. Great service, great pricing. Ready-made is just a really loyal sponsor. Been with us over a decade now, and I'll tell you, I'll put it to you this way. From the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens and everything in between, you'll find it all at the company that does what they say and say what they do, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. I, I really have always tried to make the case that it is a great idea for us to continue to develop the ability to do things. I mean, if you look at the show over the years and the content that I've put out, I go on these constant mini-obsessions, and most of them are project-based. There's something I have to build, and I have to figure out how to build it, and by doing that, I get better at building other things. That's what knife kits can do for you. So it can turn into a, a lifelong hobby. It can turn into a side business. For some people, learning to build knives turns into a full-time business. But it can also just be a project where you learn to do something at a level that you didn't maybe even think was possible. It's also a great project to do with your kids or your grandkids or your nieces or nephews or what have you. Build a knife and you build a memory. I guarantee you, even you know, kind of a low-end kit knife, you build that with your kid, Someday he'll probably give it to his grandson. I'm just saying, that's the kind of thing you're doing when you learn to build knives with KnifeKits.com. Check them out today. You know where to find them, KnifeKits.com. All right, with that, let's talk about our uh, quote of the day today. Um, there's so much disinformation going on right now in the world that I wanted to give you something on disinformation. And the first thing I did, I looked to see if there was any interesting quotes that would be by anybody noteworthy about something called a FNORD, F-N-O-R-D, FNORD. Um, this, that's, I'm not even going to get into where that comes from, uh, but you'll hear a lot about it if you read uh, the Illuminatus Trilogy, but it goes back even further than that. Um, but a FNORD is just a piece of disinformation, but you don't see it. In fact, for a FNORD to work, you have to not see it. 
But I couldn't find any really clever quotes on Fenords, and since I do quote of the day, I don't want to be making them up on my own and then and, and, and claiming credit. So I thought, well, what can I find on disinformation? And I found something that's right up the line of what we need to be talking about today to understand the world that we live in. Uh, it was by Peter Dale Scott, who was a diplomat, a poet, and a college professor from Canada. Uh, I believe he's, he taught at UC Berkeley, if, if, if I'm not wrong about that. Here's what he said about disinformation. He said, disinformation, in order to be effective, must be 90% accurate. It's another way of saying the most dangerous clock is the one that's 15 minutes off, not the one that's, that's six hours off. You look at a clock, and it says it's 2 o'clock, and it's 2 o'clock. Whether you knew it was afternoon or, or, or midnight, after midnight in the morning, it wouldn't matter. If it was 7 o'clock in the afternoon, you'd know the clock was wrong. But if it was actually 2.30 and the clock said 2 o'clock and you had lost track of time, you would believe the clock and you could make mistakes based on it, right? So that's, that's a, a fundamental reality. That's something most people do realize even if they don't think about it very often. Disinformation works a lot the same way. Here's a perfect example of disinformation that's going on right now. Well, the... Iraq government decided they don't want our troops in Iraq anymore. So they voted, and then their prime minister said, base, effectively get out. The U.S., get your troops, get out of Iraq. Uh, the United States government is not doing that. Now, that's all true. But it leads you to a false conclusion if you don't understand reality here, and you don't have the 10% of information that's kind of important. And that 10% of information that's important is when the Iraq government took a vote on this, it doesn't matter that only the Sunni were there and the Shia and the Kurds didn't show up in protest. It doesn't matter that that happened. That is irrelevant. What matters is the vote was on something they seem to have learned about from us, a non-binding resolution. That means it doesn't mean the square root of F all. We have nine, just like our government voted, you know, to limit President Trump's authority to engage in hostile activities in Iraq and war powers with a vote in a non-binding resolution. In other words, you've issued an opinion that nobody gives the square root of F all about. At all. Period. It means nothing. It's no more valid than my opinion or your opinion. It's no more binding than my opinion or your opinion. So the question is, Why? Why? They have the votes. Because, yes, even with the protests, the people that didn't show up in Iraq from their Congress, they didn't show up, they still have enough people. They have enough of a majority that if everybody who voted yes on the non-binding resolution voted yes on a binding one, it theoretically, if they would all not change their vote, should pass. And they have the majority party has the, the, the prime minister. So why not actually do it for real? Because they don't want to do it for real. Because they don't actually want the U.S. to leave. Because they actually like having us like prop their shit up for them. That's why. They want to have their cake and they want to eat it and still have it. Now, none of this has anything to do with my opinion about whether or not we should be in the Middle East or not. Specifically into Iraq. If it was up to me, if I were your president because enough people had brain damage and voted for me to be president, um, there would not be a single soldier, sailor, airman, marine in the Middle East tomorrow morning. 
We would be out of there. Right? And that, if I get elected, because again, you guys have brain damage, you voted for me. And just understand that what I mean by that would be, you know, say I'd been president for a while, there wouldn't be anybody there. I would go on a withdrawal with some sort of a timetable, like give me, give me a plan for 60 days to get out of here. Because you can't just pick everything up and leave this second, even logistically. But as quickly as possible, and you could scream and yell and gnash your teeth, and, gee, you made me commander-in-chief, you're stupid, sorry, we're getting the hell out. And I'll tell you this, I firmly believe for all the people that would scream about not being there, nobody would be making a case to go back in a couple weeks. They'd still say it was wrong, but no one would be making the case to go back. Certainly in a couple months. If we weren't there, would we go now? But the way you play this whole game and get everybody divided, everybody fighting with each other, everybody sure they know something, and everybody at the same time all being wrong, but mostly right and therefore more entrenched, give them information that's 90% or more accurate. And often the 10% is not wrong, it's simply omitted. It's simply not included. This information, in order to be effective, must be 90% accurate. Uh, next up, I got a question. Last week, um, Josh asked me a question about building a Facebook group. He's building a group on DIY. Here's what he says now. Follow up on growing a Facebook. What are your thoughts behind designating the group public versus private? I noticed the Regen Ag group is a public group. Everyone can see everything posted in the group without actually joining. What is the rational behind this decision? Might that designation affect the growth of your group? Yes, it does, for the positive, by the way. Uh, I realize the goal of groups is to create community and educate others, but by click, clicking join group is a simple step to gain access to information and community. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the pros and cons versus public and private in this context. Let's talk about another group for a second that's, that we have set up as a private group, and that is the Survival Podcast Facebook group. The only reason that group was switched to private was because we had a group of adolescent, adult adolescent children, uh, trolls, who were so much trouble and creating fake accounts and rejoining and causing trouble just to stir shit that we put the group to a fully private approve-only status to get through that period of time. The group got large enough or was around long enough. I'm not sure which one because I don't remember and I haven't looked it up in a while. But it got to a point where it's like, okay, you know what? These people have gotten bored and they've gone off to bother someone else or I don't know what. Put their thumb up their ass, rock back, and see how far their hand would go in. Whatever it was, they went to go do something you know, more productive or at least least less annoying. Let's set it back to public. And wah, wah, can't do it. Once a group reaches some milestone, and I believe it's a membership number, and it might be several thousand or five thousand or whatever, but once it reaches that number, whatever its status is when it hits that number, it shall forever be that unless Facebook someday changes that policy. And I believe that might be with some legitimacy that if I join a group and you've made a commitment to me that as being part of that group it will be a certain way, especially if it's going to be a private group, and all of a sudden you want to flip it to public, I may not like that. Because I may have been more open with a lot of things, and now you've made all this information public. So I, I understand that. Um, so I'm not, you know, of all the things I kick Facebook for, I'm not going to kick them for that. that. There is a legitimacy to that. Now, 
Why do I think it makes sense when you're building the type of group you are, Josh, to do a public group? You're trying to build a brand, and you want eyeballs. You want as many eyeballs and as many people as possible to be part of your group. And I keep trying to drive this home, this point home, in the heads of entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs in the digital age. The most valuable thing people that you're trying to reach have is not their money. And I can prove it. People spend the majority of money they earn every week, every month, every year. If people really valued their money, our savings rates would be a lot higher. So people are pretty free with their money. They piss it away, as we say. What people guard more jealously is their time. Now, I'm not saying they don't waste their time, but I'm saying like when they make a decision, do I put my time here or do I put my time there? Do I, do I watch this 10-minute video versus a 30-second one on Instagram? The modern digital user tends to be more judicious about how they spend their time than their money. And how they spend their time and where they spend their time has a huge impact eventually on where they spend their money. So the first battle is to win over their time. So you have a group, blah, 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 group. I don't care if it's your group, my group, anybody else's group, a group on fish, a group, group on freaking to tacos or Weber grills or Blackstone griddles. I mean, these are all groups. The taco one I'm not, but these are all groups I'm part of, keto diet, you know, whatever. Um, aquarium fish. I mean, there's all uh, hydroponics. I have tons of groups I'm part of. Well, when I see a group and I just see it, like somebody, like it says associated group or whatever, Facebook controls how often you're going to see that. I, a lot of times I tend to like, well, what kind of group is this? And I'll click on the group name, not join group and see like, well, what are people posting this? Is this a bunch of children yelling at each other, or is this, you know, a legitimate discussion? So, in other words, the number one way I can get you to buy, I don't know, something like uh, a, a package of cookies at a grocery store that you've never tried before. You walk in. You go to the cookie section. Oh, some damn cookies. And you know a lot of cookies. Nutter butters are good. I'm going to get some of those. And there's these new cookies, newfangled, dangled cookies. Are you going to... Waste your time on new fangled, dangled cookies when a nutter butter, you know what a nutter butter is? What is the number one way that the new fangled, dangled cookie company can get you to buy new fangled, dangled cookies? They send a nice, pretty little girl to sit there, or a good looking guy, and they sit there in a little booth and they say, Would you like a free fangled, dangled cookie? And you're like, Well, yes, I would. And you eat it, and you either go, That tastes like ass, or gee, that was delicious. And if it tastes delicious, maybe you put three or four packages into the cart, and the new Fangled Dangled Cookie Company has a new Fangled Dangled customer. Okay. They have to actually make a cookie. They actually have to send somebody to a store. And there's like hundreds and thousands of stores. And it actually costs them money. And they have to give away product. But on Facebook, all you have to do is say, hey, come take a look at my shit. Because the thing is, I'm not going to join your group for what's already in it. I might join your group because Because of what's already in it, but I'm not joining it for what's already in it. I'm joining your group because I want to see all the new shit that shows up in your group. I mean, if you think about Facebook groups, they don't really work a lot like forums. That's one of their deficiencies, by the way. They're not all canonized. I can't go into the Regen Ag group and see all posts that were made about pasture-raised pork and then look at a list of subjects 
right? I can start the discussion, but I can't really do that. Facebook groups work a hell of a lot more on currently posted things. You see like the last you know, 30 or 40 things posted if you scroll through the group a little bit. But most people don't go visit their favorite Facebook groups. Now, if there's some you really, really like and you're not seeing things in your feed and you're like, what's up? You might go do it. I have some that I keep over to the side and I go check on them. But mainly, people join stuff on Facebook because they see it in their feed. What else do we see in our feeds? We see our friends stuff. All the people we're connected to. Now, if we make a private group, and you see this really cool post about how to grow tomatoes like crazy, you think, I have some friends who grow tomatoes. I'll share this post. But it's in a private group. I can't share it. Uh-oh. I guess I won't. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go out of my way to say, hey, there's an awesome, like, make a standalone post and say, hey, that's not how Facebook works. People don't generally do this. And if they do, they're people like us who are trying to build a brand. But like all these other people, the mob you're trying to move with the, uh, pleasurable motions of the ocean, right? They don't do that. They click share. If it's not available, screw off. Why isn't this shareable? You might get that. Well, if it's in a group that's private, there's nothing you can do about it. So by making the group public, people can kind of sample it, and people can share it. And when if I'm in my feed and I see this really awesome post about growing tomatoes, and I look at it and see it's from the Tomato Superstars group, I'm like, there's a Tomato Superstars group? I didn't know that. Let me see this thing. Oh, check all this cool shit out. Join group. So you can still, all the other ways you get people into a group, you can still do all of those, but you also get broader exposure. Now, where's the place for private groups? Um, a club, a kind of a club feel. Like, um, I don't want to say who, because I don't even know if he wants people to know he has it. It's pretty much invitation only, but a good friend of the show. Uh, has been a friend of the show for a long time, has a private group. And you don't get in. You don't get in. You can. There's some ways you can find out and you can ask to get in, but mostly you get in because somebody that's in lets you in and says, hey, come check this out. That's great. I actually love the way the TSP group works now. Um, I think that we get very specific with things and we're very much in sync with the philosophy of TSP and a more broad audience that comes into it. Sometimes people do find their way in there. You can tell like you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. It doesn't work as well. So I think it, it all depends on what you're trying to do. But personally, dude, since you're trying to do kind of a broad topic, DIY, and you're trying to build a big, huge group so you can build a brand off of it, you want to reach as many people as possible. And, you know, in a DIY group, you're not going to be discussing politics or some controversial shit like that. Hey, this is how you plumb this thing, or this is how you wire this thing, or this is how you build a cabinet. This is a cool way to sand stuff or finish stuff or whatever. Like, I would go as broad with that as possible. All right, next up from Mike in PA, says, What is the best way to kill a deer hit by a car if you don't have a gun available? I saw a deer hit the other morning on the way to work, but it didn't die from the impact. It was just laying on the side of the road with broken legs and its head up. The next day, I had a close call myself. I drive a company pickup truck and prohibited from carrying a firearm. Any suggestions for safely dispatching a wounded deer? Thanks, Mike from PA. This is a tough one. Because the method I'm going to give you can be dangerous for you and the deer. But it would be a knife. And I have had wounded deer both because I had a deer one time that was shot. And I simply did not want to shoot it again. 
especially I didn't have a sidearm on that particular trip. I was carrying a 7mm Magnum. Um, and I have done this with deer on the side of the road. And if you know what you're doing, you can cut the animal's throat and bleed it out. This is going to be much more difficult with an animal with its head up that's aware. And it's probably not something that you're going to be comfortable doing. I don't have a really great answer. There's a lot of ways to get it done, but they're not necessarily things that you'd want to do. Um, you know, a, a blunt instrument like a sledgehammer uh, to the base of the skull will get this done, but it's not necessarily something you want to do. I don't have a great answer for this. Um, and I think that anything using a blade to dispatch a large animal, you have to be really competent in what you're doing. And you're either bleeding out from a, a, a cut of the, the jugular and the carotid, or you're doing a direct puncture of the heart. And either will bleed the animal out really fast. But let's say you have a buck, and let's say that buck is capable of moving his head. You have a serious potential for injury. Let's say you have a doe, rather small doe, late, can't get up. You know she can't. She's just laying there. You know, sometimes animals like that, when they get to the point of total fear, being approached by a human, all of a sudden the animal that couldn't get up, couldn't get up, can get up, and a flailing whitetail with its hooves, even a rather small deer, can kill you. So I'm, I don't have a great answer for this. And I have to issue the concept of using a blade with an abundance, I mean a flat abundance of caution. And I also wonder how that impacts state-level laws. I haven't lived in Pennsylvania for a long time with no plans to go back. I don't even know what the law says about this in your particular area. I think that The the best course of action for the most people is probably going to be report the animal injured and down on the side of the road through 911. Now, I don't know what they're going to do, how likely they are to send out a trooper or whatever to deal with it, but I, I, I am open to somebody going, here's an answer, and then me going, gee, that's the, the best answer for that difficult situation I've ever heard. But I, I, I don't have a good one. And I will say, if the animal is capable of causing bodily injury, you, ha you, you, you don't go approaching it with your buck knife. The same one I just talked about. I shot a doe, and I headshot her, blew the back of her cranium off, dropped her like a stick of dynamite, but when I got up to her, she was moving her mouth and was basically gasping for air, so I cut her throat. I know it sounds gruesome, but I mean, it's your job. I was, and again, I was carrying a 7mm and no freaking sidearm. And I'm standing like 10 feet away from this deer. The same trip, I blew the spine out of a psycho buck. Fairly big one. Long, pointy antlers. Head flailing everywhere. Guess what? He got another pill from the 7mm. I was not approaching that. So um, I have dispatched a, 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 a pig that had been shot that wasn't dead with a heart stab with a knife. And I almost cut myself pretty badly just on a... The animal couldn't get up. The animal was truly 
down, but just flipped and twitched. You've got to be really careful doing that. And so, again, I don't necessarily recommend it. If you have to ask, you really probably shouldn't be doing it. So anybody got any ideas on this? What would you do in this situation? Um, and, you know, in a state like Pennsylvania, there's probably a lot less people that are armed while traveling than in a state like Texas where sooner or later someone's going to take care of it. I don't like the idea that any animal on the side of the road that has no hope of recovery sitting there slowly dying. I mean, people often wonder you know, how, how hunters can love animals and kill them at the same time or how homesteaders that keep livestock, same question. And the answer is, You know, we have a lot of appreciation for animals, and we might use the term love, but we mean love the way you mean I like I love the mountains. I don't mean it the way I love my wife or my kids or even my dog. You can have respect for an animal. You can have an appreciation for an animal. Um, you can believe in dignity for an animal, and you can still take its life, you know, for food. And, and that includes looking at something in that situation and saying, this is just not right. And this is an inevitability as well. Like, this animal's not going to recover. If you have a deer on the side of the road with multiple broken legs, usually compound fractures from a vehicle collision, that animal's not going to be nursed back to health. The expedient thing is to put the animal down. And I have to put one other thing up here. Even if you have a sidearm, you have to be really careful about what you're doing. And again, I mean, you got to look at, like, what does the law in your state say about this? If you have an animal laying on the side of the road, is it in the gully with dirt behind it? Is there rocks in that dirt? What is the chances of a ricocheted shot? I mean, there's a lot, you know, it's not as simple as just because you have a gun shoot it either. So I think in most instances for most people, reporting the animal through 911 is the way to go. Next up, Cody's got like a land management slash permaculture slash grazing slash homesteading question. Uh, he says, I'm acquiring a four acre field that's located behind my house. It's currently fenced. It was once used for cattle. I'm in southeast Ohio. My question is, given a blank slate, so to speak, what would you recommend to put on this land to have a few turkeys and chickens and tractors, a garden, and increase the woods to increase deer hunting? My current idea is to make most of the acreage wood with fruit and nut trees, leave about one acre for livestock and a garden. I think it's a fine plan. I think an acre is all that you need. Now, here's what my suggestion is. This acre should be the most convenient and closest acre of the property to your to your property. And if that acre, to be convenient because of the way the land lays or something, eight-tenths of an acre, don't worry about it. That's plenty to do what you want to do. Uh, you can grow a lot of garden uh, in a few hundred square feet, and a few chickens and turkeys don't really need much land. I want to say real quick about your turkeys. Uh, if you're gonna, because it sounds to me like you want to put chickens and turkeys in tractors. I do not recommend tractoring turkeys and chickens in the same tractor long term because your turkeys will get big and beat up your chickens. Uh, assuming you're doing this at meat and you're talking about meat breeds, I don't know how like Royal Palm or some of these other heritage turkeys, if you were going to be keeping some turkeys around uh, long-term for eggs and breeding and stuff, I, I don't have a lot of experience with that. I will tell you from growing uh, several years of growing broad-breasted bronze, the gobblers get really, really aggressive, and you're talking about an animal that even long before harvest is 25, 30 pounds, and by the time you harvest it, often these animals exceed 50 pounds in weight, and an aggressive 50-pound animal is dangerous. 
And I've seen them kill chickens, I've seen them kill ducks, and I've seen them kill each other. So if you're going to be doing turkeys, I think you're more along the lines of electro-netting and giving them more space. Because the more we can find, the more this happens. Another option with turkeys, if you're doing them just for meat, if you're going to do broad-breasted, which is what I would do for meat, uh, is to do all, all hens. They don't kill each other. They just don't. And just to be clear, I've seen... Uh, one year, the year of the massacre, we had a tom that killed several hens, not just other toms. Um, in a gruesome, I don't want to explain it, but a gruesome way that it wasn't until the very end that we figured out what was happening. We thought we had some sort of a predator that was big enough to do a lot of damage, but not big enough to drag the birds away. I'm talking gaping holes in their back and things like that. And so I'm probably going to do broad-breasted turkeys this year, and I'm going to go all hens. And, you know, you're talking about birds that finish out at 22 to 32 pounds. That's, that's big enough. So that's another option there. Uh, with your tractors, that's a, that's a totally different discussion. Um, what I would want to do if I were you is think about the size and dimensions of the tractors that you're going to be pulling and then think about your garden. And since you've got quite a bit of space to do a rather large garden, I would try to develop the garden that is designed specifically in mind with the tractors to go in between the rows and around the garden. And I would take a look at Jeff Lawton's concept known as a chicken tractor on steroids and factor that into your decision. That said, if you're going to be doing turkeys, you're, you know, you're looking at it grow out of four to six months. If you're doing chickens and you're going to do, you know, Cornish cross, you're looking at it grow out of about eight weeks. So you're only going to be doing so much of that. So now we have to think about the rest of this acre. If it's not garden, And it's not chicken tractor all the time. And we're in Ohio where we have pretty quick field turned back into forest. We're going to need to think about how we're going to maintain that. So that either is some small number of ruminants like goats or something. And that's a whole different discussion. And we have to come up with a method of control that they don't get away or cause trouble or make your life miserable. And I hate goats. I'm just going to come out and say it. Uh, sheep might be better. Uh, even dorper lambs, something like that. Uh, or, you know, a small Dexter cow or something like that, uh, something to graze it, or you got to mow it. And mowing is probably the easy answer. At least going into this and getting your system set up, plan on mowing that acre to, to maintain it. Uh, and your, your sheep, your, or not your sheep, your, your, your chickens, your turkeys, et cetera, will appreciate it when you mow because it causes this, you know, regrowth uh, that's very much almost like when we, we, we cop as a tree. And we get that branchy regrowth when we mow grasses. We get that some kind of branchy regrowth uh, of the swards. Um, as far as like cover crop and whatever, whatever you want. I mean, don't don't use heavy amounts of cover crop. The best thing to do is come up with a good mix of things that you want to encourage to grow on your property. Some perennials, some annual grasses mixed together, some clovers, uh, maybe some things like some daikon and stuff like that. And just come up with that mix. And when you move a tractor, seed a very small amount of that mix. And if you do that, and I, I mean small amount, less than you think. If you're like, that's enough, you pro it's probably too much until you get a feel for it. Um, it's just small amounts here and there. Over time, that'll build up. You'll end up with land races. Things will be reseeding. Things will be great. The other three, three and a half acres, depending on what you do here. If you do nothing, in five years, you will have a forest on those three acres. Trees will regrow. It will be thick, and you'll be able to barely get through it. A deer will like it for hiding in. But you need to come up with some level of pathways and spacing for that land, and you need to start figuring out where you're going to let things grow and where you're not going to let things grow. 
And in the meantime, the easiest thing to do where you want to create pathways and stuff, mow. Trees, you can mow trees when they're little trees. Keep the pathways. Design your pathway in space and landform that way. And then if you don't plant trees, nature's going to give you what you're going to get. Now, deer, Ohio. Oaks, persimmons, apples. And you don't have to spend a lot of money on them. Uh, you want to, like, look at some, try to find what's available in your area, but some of the fast turn hybrid white oaks. Um, if you, if you check out like Lowe's and Home Depot, I don't know about Ohio, but around here, they, there are tons of them, uh, especially Lowe's seems to be planted with a white oak, and I don't know the species, but it's a hybrid, because these trees are only about as big around as my thigh, and I'd say, and maybe they're 15 foot tall, and they produce big white oak, uh, big white acorns about every other year. If you have one of those around you, go get the acorns and, and just put them in the refrigerator, look up stratification of acorns, and plant them from seed. You can make hundreds and hundreds of them for next to nothing. Um, native persimmon, you can go to a place like Coldstream or Laura's Nursery or something like that and get them pretty cheap for, for seedlings, uh, or you can propagate your own. Uh, black cherry is another good plant to, uh, to get in there. Black walnut would be great. Uh, easy to propagate from seed. You should have no trouble getting your hands on it for free around you. Uh, any of the oaks that are around you, you can propagate from, from, from acorns. Just understand most of your native white oaks in the Northeast are 25 years to produce any significant mast. The red oaks will produce quicker, but they're not as well um, appreciated by deer. Um, apple, I would, if I were you, start asking all, everybody you know that eats apples to save uh, seeds for you. And I would just plant apple from seed, like Johnny Appleseed, as much of it as you can on your property, all over the place. But again, come up with a framework and layout, because even though you want it to be hunting land, you want open spaces, you want glades. So what I would do is, is I would, you know, whether this thing's a trapezoid, a square, whatever, I'd get some graph paper and graph out sectors in it to scale. It doesn't have to be a high-end permaculture design or anything, but, like, how would you get from here to there? Whereas your contour lines might be a good place. See, instead of, like, putting swells or anything, if you define a contour line, and that contour line is beautiful for crossing your property. It goes east to west across it from one end to the other. Pick somewhere along that contour, mark it out, and start mowing it. And as you grow your forest, grow a, grow a path on contour by excluding growth from it. And it's gonna it's gonna last if you're driving ATVs across or something. Like it's not gonna wear out on you as quickly. It's not gonna have as much maintenance required because it's on contour. So once you kind of do that and kind of figure out that sector analysis there of how you want things laid out, put in your pathways and then start planning. You know, I want an oak clump here. I want an ever. You know, deer like evergreens. Deer like pines. Um, because it's quiet. It's protected. It's 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 protected from wind. You can make a very well a whitetail utopia in there. Just know this. You're going to attract deer to a place you're going to plant a garden. Uh, I would put electric, I would plan in your budget for electric fence around your garden spot because they'll eat it. <laughs> they'll eat it every single, if you'll eat it, a deer will eat it. A deer will eat things you'll never eat, 
But if it's, if it's a vegetative crop and you'll eat it, a deer will eat it. I promise you. And they'll do it over and over again. Next up, Brad in, in New Jersey says, what is the best way to store ammo for medium to long term? I bought a few cases of the other precious metal to take advantage of low prices, but now I need to figure out how to store it since I won't be shooting it in the near term. I have a vacuum sealer for food. I could invest in some ammo cans or open other, I'm open to other suggestions. Currently, the ammo's in my basement, climate controlled, and my garage less climate controlled. I'd like to store this in my garage due to space but can move it to the basement if I had to what do you recommend if it's ammo cans would it be used metal cans or plastic Plano type cans P.S. I planted some apple trees last spring what kind of sprays do you recommend and when thanks Brad good on you getting the uh, the second question in there a little sidearm so I'm going to say you get one question on air uh, especially when I have everything mapped out and I didn't catch your second question I'm going to refer you to the fruit and nut tree plan from Howard Garrett, the dirt doctor. And I'll put a link in the show notes today that tells you exactly what to spray and when to spray it. And it's all 100% beyond organic. Uh, and it, it is very effective. And it, especially in New Jersey, it will make you very, very happy as an apple owner. All right. Um, next on the ammo, don't overthink this. Let me, before I give you kind of what I would do in your situation, let me give you two stories. They're true stories and they both involve me. One is that I, uh, a long time ago, picked up a Turkish Mauser. And these were Turkish Mausers were built in the 1890s. Uh, and they were some weird 7.9-something old, archaic, out-of-date cartridge. And in the 1930s, being Mausers, the Turkish government sent them to Germany and said, hey, get us up with the newfangled stuff. We don't want to buy new guns. And rebarrel these things into 8mm, which is what y'all are doing everything with now. I'm sure they didn't say y'all, but you get my point. Uh, Turkish telling the Germans y'all, doubtful. Anyway, so the Germans say, we'll do that. And they, they take all of these old Mausers from the 1890s, 18, actually some of them were like the late 1880s. And uh, they put modern 8mm barrels on them, set the headspace, and sent them back and charged them you know, a fee per, per weapon. Now the reason I owned one of these is since they were old enough, they qualified as an antique and you could buy them with no paperwork. And SOG was selling them for like 90 bucks. So I got one. And I said, yeah, I'd like to shoot this old piece of crap. So um, I was browsing the Cheaper Than Dirt catalog back when Cheaper Than Dirt sent paper catalogs. I guess they probably still do. I haven't seen one in a long time, though. And they had some 8mm ammo in it. And these were like big bandoliers. And I don't remember if there was 40 or 60 rounds to a bandolier. But they just sounded like a piece of history on top of everything else. But it was 8mm, and it was 8mm rounds that were originally for machine guns. And the Germans shipped a whole bunch of this 8mm machine gun ammo to the Turks. Don't worry, this is going to involve, you're going to understand why this has to do with ammo storage here in a minute. In the 1930s. Got it? Now, when it got there, the Turks didn't have a lot of 8mm belt-fed machine guns. But they had all these, you know, brand new used Mausers for their, their part in the war effort. So they said, I know. They got a bunch of child and woman labor together, gave them a bunch of old rags and stuff, and had them start making up these bandoliers and taking the rounds off the belts and putting them on the stripper clips for the Mausers. So here in front of me, and it was like, it was stupid. It was like $3.99 a bandolier or $4.99 a bandolier for this ammo on stripper clips that were made for this gun that I had bought for 90 bucks. So I bought a bunch of them. And it said, some of this stuff's pretty rough looking. Well, I get it in, and rough, yeah. 
Yeah, it's been stored since the 70s in Turkey. Or since the 30s in Turkey. Pretty old. Some of it had little cracks in the um, the, 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 the cartridge right where uh, it w- the ammo was crimped on. Some of them you could actually wiggle the slug out of the cartridge. Most of it, though, seemed like it was okay. Like if it didn't have a loose bullet and it didn't have a big corrosion hole in it or something, like, okay. So clearly, since some of it did, this stuff wasn't exactly stored you know, in an ammo can in an airtight, vacuum-sealed environment. I didn't get a single misfire. I'm not saying there weren't any. I'm saying I fired a couple hundred rounds of this crap through this old beat-up gun, and none of them misfired. Fast forward. When I was living in Arkansas, a buddy of mine named Neil, some of you guys know who he is, he came up to see me. And we used to shoot in my backyard there because we could. And I had this 4570, and I hadn't loaded ammo for it forever. I had meant to do it, and I hadn't. I had a whole bunch of brass laying around, but I didn't really have but like three or four rounds for it. And he really wanted to shoot a 4570. So we go down to a little gun store in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and say, you got any 4570? Well, got some old 405-grain flat point sitting here in the back that somebody traded me. And it was like some old Winchester or something like that. And this stuff was old. He said, I think it's about from the 70s. So I open this box of ammo and I pull one of the sl- one of the cartridges out and the lead is white. There's a hard cast lead bullet and it's white. <laughs> and it's the, the cartridge is dull looking at all. I said, well, how much do you want? Thirty-two dollars. Said, come on, man. It, it, it's the only one around. I guarantee you ain't gonna find it around here. And I look and I think, Walmart may or may not have some. I don't want to go to Walmart today. And I said, 28 bucks. Now, you drive a hard bargain, dude. Okay. So I'm thinking like half of this shit's not going to shoot. But Neil's a friend, and it's an experience, so we get this box of these. Every one of them fired. So keep your ammo in a cool, dry place. Keep your ammo in a place that's safe in case there's a fire and you, it doesn't exasperate the problem, and don't worry about it. You want to get ammo camps? Go ahead. You want plastic ones or metal ones? I just like metal ones better because they last longer, and you know you can do other things with them when there's no more ammo in them. Would I vacuum seal ammunition? No. No. I'm not wasting my time doing things that aren't necessary. That's that's my opinion. I think that we, we get into this, well, I'm going to store it for a long time. How long are you going to store it? So my story with the ammo for the 8mm was right around the, the time I got that ammo and was firing it off was around 2008, right around the time I started this show. And it had been around since the 30s. So it's like 80 years. Is 80 years enough storage life for you? Yeah? Okay, then don't overthink this and think more about the safety of it and keeping it dry and keeping it where it's, you know, out of the place, the reach of little hands that maybe shouldn't get their hands on it and things like that. And, and just don't over worry about it at all because it's, it's just not worth doing. So next up, Ross says, Jack, I don't comment much online because I know you have little patience for internet morons and I definitely qualify at times, but I would like to hear you elaborate on episode 1874. Gee, that's a while ago. I've listened to it multiple times and have a hard time giving up my vote. Even though I know my life would be easier if I just focused on my circles of control and influence, the Virginian and Iran noise have left me ready to pull my hair out in opposite directions. How do we avoid watering the tree of liberty while refusing 
uh, another pointless foreign entanglement. I do have four teenage sons that I'm biased toward protecting from this nonsense. It just seems convenient that there would need they, they, that we would need soldiers abroad just as we need them at home. Sorry if I'm misusing, missing some of the main point. I'm lost. Uh, I do love the show, and I implement your advice in my life. Before I answer this at all, let me say I have never in my life, nor will I ever tell anyone who wants to vote, who lives in a society that runs a democratic system, which you can republic your brains out all you want. This is a democratic system that we're in. No, we are not a pure democracy. I don't want to go down this road again, but this is a democratically elected representative democracy in the form of a constitutional republic, and you can shift around them words however you want to, and it won't change jack shit. By the way, there's over 100 republics in the world. Republics aren't magic, okay? But if you live in a place where you have the ability to vote for shit, and you want to vote for shit, then what I think you should do is you should vote for shit or against shit, or whatever you want to do. Go do it. I do think, as, as sane, rational adults, we should be honest with ourselves about whether something we're doing is akin to, um, you know, building something or pissing into the wind. And mathematically, your vote is not going to change any of the things that you're worried about. Voting, to me has become a mechanism to convince the people that they have a say in the society when they do, but they don't have it politically. There is no way... Let's look at something that's largely misunderstood here. The three-fifths rule from the Constitution. When they were determining how many representatives in Congress a state got, they were going to do it by population. And that's what they did. That's what we still do today. Well, the southern states had a, a far smaller population than the northern states. But one thing they had was a lot of slaves. Well, the northern states obviously didn't want to give up a lot of power uh, to the southern states based on the population of slaves. So they came up with the three-fifths rules or three-fifths compromise where they said that the, the slave counted for three-fifths a person. And today, a lot of people that want to make a big hoopla out of social justice say, they said we were only three-fifths three human. That's, 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 that's not what they said. In fact, the, the better thing for the slaves in the South would have been for the three-fifths rule to never have happened and for them to have had no count in the census. Now, I know that sounds wrong, but a lot of things that sound wrong are right if you actually understand them. Because what it did is it took, let's say, a slave owner who had 500 slaves... And it gave him, effectively, the clout of somebody who had, effectively, 300 votes. Because th do you think that that slave owner or anybody he was going to vote for was going to do what was, in best, was best for the slaves? They, I mean, you, do you understand what I'm saying there? That, that's how that's been largely misunderstood. Well, in, in, in a large degree... We're slaves of an oligarchy, and their, their influence with their money has way more influence than our votes will ever have, including their ability to manipulate us into voting certain ways at certain times. So I just don't think your vote means that much. But if it means something to you, then by all means, you should exercise it. And anything I say might be wrong. 
I've said from the very beginning, I reserve the right to be wrong. I'm giving you my opinion. So if you want to hold out hope that if you go vote for XYZ Clown B next November, that it makes it less likely that one of your teenage sons will end up in the Middle East, go ahead. Now, I just ask you to, to separate from emotion, channel your inner Vulcan for like 45 seconds, and ask yourself if you really think that is going to matter. Do you really think that if you do vote a certain way, that it won't happen, but if you abstain from voting or vote a different way, it will happen? Does that make does that track logically at all? And I think that you'd be honest and say, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. See, we want to feel like we have control. We want to feel like I did something. If your kid dies in a foreign war, you're not going to be able to say, well, I did something so I feel better about it. And your kid's not going to die in a foreign war because he gets drafted. We're not going to have, there is going to be no draft. Like, all this hype and all this bullshit, your, your child is only going to end up in the army if he joins the army. Your voting won't change that. A discussion with him might. And it might not. In the end, he's going to grow up into a man. All of them will. They will grow up into young men. They will be able to say, Dad, I appreciate your opinion, but now I'm going to go do my thing my way because I'm an adult. And that means you've done your job. And the only way that your kid's going to Iraq or Afghanistan or whatever piss hole we go into next is if he decides to join the military. That's the only way that's going to happen. I'm telling you right now. So if you don't want your child involved in foreign wars as a member of the armed services, then the discussion with your child about that and the consequences of doing it and what it really means and what really happens will have a tremendous influence on whether or not your child goes. And even if they reinstituted the draft, which isn't going to happen, but if they did, then, then there's a lot more chance that that young man would either file as a conscientious objector or specifically take actions to end up in a situation where they're in a non, at least a non-combat role. You influence that. You don't influence what the next president is going to do With foreign intervention. You don't. But if, again, and I'm not being facetious here, I really feel <coughs> if it makes you feel better to actively participate in our democratic elections, you should do it. You guys that have listened to me a long time, you know I love my wife. I am the most dedicated man in the world when it comes to how dedicated your wife you are. I don't vote. My wife does. Do you think I hold that against her in any way? Do you think I ever say, honey, you really shouldn't do this? She says, I'm going to go vote. Okay, bye. See you when you get back. Be careful when you're driving. Because I know that she's at there's more of a risk of her getting hit in the car by a truck on the way to vote than it, it, there is that her vote will influence an election. So I'm more concerned about her safety during transport than who she does or doesn't vote for. You can't go around telling people their vote doesn't matter and then get pissed off when they vote. There's a lot of people in the anarcho world I think could learn that lesson. You can't have it both ways. Either it doesn't matter, and then you shouldn't give a shit, or it does matter, and then you have to logically defend why you shouldn't do it even though it does matter. It's one or the other. Now, as far as giving up on the system, I think there's things that you can do within the system that are actually highly effective for people that are kind of, let's, how I say, uh, right for the task. 
I'm not a diplomat. I'm not a politician. Okay, I guess I'm going to run for president, but I'm not a politician. I'm the worst politician ever. Don't vote for me. You know, I mean, at least the guy I'm taking the idea from Richard Pryor and Brewster's Million said, vote for none of the above, right? I, I don't even have the sense to do that. Don't vote for me is actually my campaign slogan. Spirit Go 2020, don't vote for me. So I'm not a politician. So I'm not the guy that's going to be running for office. I'm not the guy that's going to get actively involved with lobbying on a local level. There's a lot you can do to take that system that exists and push some piece of it toward getting things you want done. We've had people on the show that have done simple things, not really simple to do, but simple in the greater picture, because you're talking about foreign wars, as simple as, I would like to be able to keep some chickens in my damn backyard, please, and gotten ordinances removed. I'm all for that. And guess what? If I thought I could go vote for something next November, and my people that live down the road from me in the hell that is lakeside that can't own a chicken like I can could then own a chicken, I would go vote. If I thought it would matter and if I thought it would help. But I just don't believe that because I'm a grown-ass adult and I don't believe in the tooth fairy and I can do mathematics. And again, that doesn't mean you shouldn't. And what people say to counter this argument is, but if everybody votes or the, the people that do vote, the majority make the decision. You're correct. But... What I find is the people that want to get all in my face about not voting, if I tell them how I would vote, they're not happy about that. See, when people say you have to vote, they generally don't mean you have to vote. They mean, I want you to vote the way that I think you should vote. Tell a leftist you don't vote. Okay, I'll vote. Great for Trump. What? You said it was important that I voted. I can't believe you'd vote for Trump. All right, I won't vote for Trump. Okay. Who are you going to vote for then? You know, Sanders, whoever? Yeah. Ah, the libertarian candidate. Ah, you're wasting your vote. Like, that's, that's the response. Like, like, nothing you can do in this debate makes the person telling you how important it is happy other than to agree to do what they tell you you should do. And look, elections are pretty much easy to predetermine. Even last time when Trump won and everybody was saying, oh, Clinton's going to be president. I was like, I don't think so. I think if you were honest about it, it was pretty obvious what was going to happen. People were pissed, and it was an alternative, and nobody was really excited about her, right? But if I voted last time for Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump would still be president. If I voted last time for Donald Trump, Donald Trump would still be president. If I voted for Gary Johnson, Donald Trump would still be president. If I voted for Jill Stein or whoever the hell was the Green Party candidate, Donald Trump would still be president. If I voted for myself, Donald Trump would still be president. If I had gone into the voting booth here in Texas, I think they use machines now instead of paper ballots, but if they still use paper ballots, and I had taken an ink blot pad and made a mushroom stamp with my dick on the damn ballot, Donald Trump would still be president. So in what world can you give me a compelling reason who has decided I am out of the system that I need to vote? And the answer is there isn't one. Bizarro land with backwards Superman is not a world in which you can make that case to me at this point. I know too much. Now, so, but what world is there that I can tell you that I don't think your vote matters and then tell you that I have anything to say about whether or not you do something that I just said didn't matter? 
That world doesn't exist either. Not if I'm intellectually honest. So I think you need to do what you need to do. But what I just heard from you is you don't like what's going on in Virginia. Well, my first question is, do you live in Virginia? And if you do, then there are people taking action that are that's way more powerful than voting in Virginia over this issue right now. There are people that are aligning with their sheriffs and saying this is not happening. And then it's going to be up to the electorate in the coming election to see if any of that shit changes with the next election cycle. Right? I don't know that that really affects Virginia that much because this is local government. But this fight in Virginia, in a republic that so many of you are so proud of telling me I need to vote, is Virginia's issue. Unless it gets challenged at the Supreme Court, which to me is a hell of a lot more effective to take a case to the Supreme Court than to vote about it. Right? Iran. You're concerned about Iran. Iran is not going to affect your life here in America. No one will turn an Xbox. I said that last week. No one will turn off an Xbox or whatever game system people are wasting their time with today because of Iran. No one. There will not be a World War III. We are not going to war with Russia and China. We are not invading Iran. It is not happening. You're not actually concerned about Iran. You told me straight up you have sons. You're concerned about your teenage sons, and you don't want them to go into foreign wars. Guess what? You have more influence over their decisions as they become adults than the TV set, their teachers, their preacher, their best friend, if you do your job as a father. You have a better chance of preventing what you're afraid about by having frank, honest, logical, calm discussions with your four boys about what the United States' intervention in the world really results in so that they are fully informed young men by the time they are of age to enter into contract with their government in service. That will probably be enough to make sure your worst fear doesn't happen. They can need all the shit they want. This country is not one where you can reinstitute the draft easily, if at all, ever. And you certainly ain't going to do it to go to war with freaking Iran. It ain't happening. But your kid might, you know, get a wild hair up his ass and say, this army guy makes sense. I'm going to go join the army. There's your issue. There's your point to push. Since it's what, this is the most important thing in this whole discussion. Since it, Ross, is what you are concerned about within your circle of concern. You do not control your children. I know you think you do, but you do not. You do influence them. The only time we go into our circle of concern, I'm afraid this thing can happen, is when we have a push point in our circle of control. You control what discussions you have with your children. Those discussions influence their future decisions. Got me? <laughs> your electorate is not going to change what our government is going to do in Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, or who the hell knows where else. So that's my assessment But as far as what you should do, should you give up on the system or not, you know, you should do what you want to do. But I would just ask you one more time. Do you really believe? Do you really believe that you will have any influence at all over what U.S. foreign policy is in the Middle East by voting in November or not? And if you say, well, I, I don't really think that I will, but I have to do something, go ahead and do it, but then... You see, this is why you're asking me the question. Because you already asked yourself that question. You already got the answer. You didn't like it. 
You want it to change or go away. I, I can't do that. I can't lie to you. Anyway, let's take another one. Next up, um, I don't see a name here with this one. Um, Zal, I'll call him, because that's kind of the email address I've got. Uh, when installing a raised bed garden on a lawn, do I need to dig up the existing grass? Question, can I use fallen branches to help fill up the raised bed? Details, I'm building a small raised bed. It's about five inches high. I would like to stick some dead branches on the lawn, uh, the raised bed, to help them rot faster. Maybe even call it hugelkultur while it rots. So it's not hugelkultur. Five inches deep uh, and, and, and branches is probably not going to do you any good. If you want to do that, you need to go deeper. Also, if you have a good sodded lawn and you put a raised bed on it with five inches of soil, you're going to have a five inches uh, high uh, raised sod gar uh, grass plot in half of a season. That grass will grow up and into that bed from five inches. You know, if you were putting in some kind of giant like retaining wall level, you know, like one layer of cardboard down there would probably be fine or i just put some in that are freaking 27 inches high because they're really more of a structure and then they happen to be a garden yeah the grass isn't going to grow 27 inches through soil you know completely taken away from light it's not going to happen grass can't survive that deep but five inches it will absolutely grow up through your soil And you're not going to be able, again, to, to do a lot of burying wood or something like that. I mean, you could get some little sticks that are about as big as your thumb or something like that if it floats your boat and throw them in there before you put your dirt on top. But you have, you have two choices. The hard one, which is probably the right one, and that's going to be dig up the sod. And if you were going to do, it says a small bed, so I don't know how big it's going to be. Let's say you're going to do a four by eight. You know, it's kind of standard size raised bed, four foot by eight foot. Then you probably want to dig your sod up like 10 foot by five foot, 10 foot by six foot, a foot all the way around border. And then you're going to want to come in with something like cardboard or something like that and, and put cardboard down in that one foot um, border area and then do something like uh, wood mulch or something like that on top of it. I think you're going to probably want to lay cardboard down inside the bed and then put your fill in. And the grass, go throw that in compost heap or something. Don't turn it upside down. Not that shallow. You're going to, if you're going to dig down, like you're going to double dig, so you're going to dig down about eight inches, take dirt out and have a hole, and then, then you could turn the sod upside down, throw it in the bottom of the hole, throw the dirt on top of it. But if you're just going to build up onto an existing lawn, don't do it. If you want to try to avoid doing the sod busting, given it is winter and you have some time to do this, if you were to go out there and lay down cardboard, again, at least one foot bigger than the footprint of the bed, and tarp it and weight it down and deny it light for 60 days, which, you know, depending on where you're at, like, How much earlier do you need a garden to be ready to plant into? Um, it will be dead, and you won't have to break it up. And that's that's the thing you have an op. Like if you wanted to do this in April, I'd, dude, you got to you got to bust sod. It's gonna suck, but you got to do it. Right now, you could kill the grass that way. And well, the other thing I would do is I would go by the feed store, 
and get yourself a bag of like chicken feed or I don't care if sweet sweet feed would be great for this like horse sweet feed. In fact, a lot of times with feed stores, you got any bags that have some bugs in them or, or tore open and you want to sell cheap, you can sometimes get like a 50-pound bag of feed. Maybe it's now 40 because 10 of it leaked out on the floor for like five bucks. They'll sell it just to get rid of it for you. Uh, it'll be all taped up. and You take that and just spread it, the whole footprint, up but where you're going to tarp it, then throw your cardboard on there and then tarp that. When you pull that thing up next spring, when you go to plant There will be worms and, and good critters in there like you wouldn't believe because they'll all come in there to eat that. And you'll have a great deal of fertility. And then when you put your fill on top of it, that'll be a nice area where those roots of your plants can get down into and get a lot of additional nutrient and what have you. I would do one of those two things. But if you just, I'm just saying this for everybody. You know, when you say five inches, I'm thinking, yeah, you're thinking I'm going to build a box out of two by sixes. Fine plan. But I see it all the time. People take, you know, I'll get myself three eight-foot two-by-sixes, take my chops off, shoot, make two four-foot pieces, get me some deck screws, zip, 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 zip. Hey, I got a box. I throw that box on the ground. Go get them a few bags of, uh, of, of garden soil or whatever from the Lowe's or Home Depot, and they throw it in there. Well, it looks good. <laughs> and then they go get themselves a couple bags of wood mulch chip because Jack said wood mulch is the way to go. They put the wood mulch down. Look at that. It looks good. That's awesome. That's great. And then they say, that looks pretty. And they go get some Bonnie's plants, and they stick them in there about one every one foot, like Mel, Mel Bartholomew says, square foot. Go, Look at that. Got me a tomato, got me a pepper, got me an eggplant. About three weeks into it, they see a little blade of grass stick up through there and like tug on it. It doesn't want to come out. Finally, it breaks. I got it. <laughs> Four or five weeks later, There's grass everywhere. And if you have a runner grass like uh, like a Bermuda or something like that, like you just you're gonna end up at the end of the season just I'm gonna take a shovel and pry up that box and spread this dirt out and put a tarp on it like Jack said I should have and leave it until next spring and kill the grass. I promise you. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, you will hate your life. All right, next up, um, I have an email here from Paul, and it's about something called Prenda School. And they had some pretty interesting videos, and I found the one that I think maybe is the best for explaining what it's really all about. And so I'm going to play that video for you now. Um, but these are basically small learning environments, in-home learning, and the teacher is a guide versus what we typically think of as a teacher. And that's all I'll say about it for now. Let me go ahead and play this video, and I'll come back with some thoughts on it. For me, I spent most of my career the last six years teaching in the traditional model. And when I first learned about Prenda, it was so different than what I had experienced working in a traditional model that I felt a little overwhelmed about it at first until I got in and got to see it in practice. But a few things that are functionally different is, one, the class sizes are really small. So eight to ten students is where most classes have a maximum size. Two, students are assessed at their current content knowledge, and that is where they work. So in math, if there's a sixth grader, but they have the content knowledge of a second grader around mathematics, they start in second grade. Or if they are in sixth grade and they're in eighth grade level, that's where they start. So that's another huge difference, because in a traditional model, you could have sixth graders who are at an eighth grade math level and a first grade reading level, and there's not a lot in place to help bridge that gap, but we are able to identify in these academic areas where students are and start them 
at that level, which is really powerful and helps develop a lot of confidence for them, especially in areas where they feel like they haven't been able to be successful. The third way that Prenda is functionally different than a traditional classroom is that the teacher is not the holder of the knowledge. The teacher, which we call guides, they are not deliverers of content. They are there to motivate, to coach, to love, and to help students figure out how to learn on their own using the tools that we've provided for them. The technology has all of the answers built into it, all the, the tools that they would need to find the answers. So they go through and they work at their own level, and when they have a question or they don't understand something, that's when they would come to the guide and say, I can't figure this out, I really need some help. The first thing we ask them is, what have you tried? The second thing we ask them is if they've asked someone else in the room. And then the third thing is, if I wasn't here right now, what would you do? And then it's only after that, only after they've exhausted all their resources, that the guide will step in and not give them the answer, but then work collectively together to go out and help them figure out why they weren't able to find the answers in those resources. So those three things, I mean, there's a lot of things, but those three things especially were really interesting to me coming from a traditional model, being a high school math teacher and, and recognizing that I couldn't help all of my students because my classes were too big, I was the beholder of all the knowledge and I couldn't get knowledge distributed to everyone in a class of 30 and this provides that opportunity for everyone to work where they're at, which is so significant, and removes me as the holder of all the knowledge, which was a little hard for my ego to swallow at first, but then realizing that I am empowering them and the power that they feel when they found the answer versus taking that on myself and letting that be something that boosted my confidence, it now is something that's going to boost their confidence. So Paul, who sent this to me, said, I received this from a coworker homeschools and thought you'd be interested. Paul, I'm, I'm very interested. Uh, I'll let you know that the first thing I did after I decided to run this on the show and selected a video was before I moved everything to kind of the folder and got it ready for today is I sent an email to Prenda Schools through their contact form and said, I would very much love to have somebody from your organization on this show to explain this better to us. Because I have, a, I have a lot, as much as I got as an answer, I have a lot more questions. How much does it cost? That would be one. You know, that would just be one of the questions. You know, how exactly does it work, et cetera? Uh, is it available everywhere? You know, and I'm sure if I dug deep enough, I can get some more answers. But I'd like to get a subject matter expert on from Prenda and learn more about it. But I think that, so my broader discussion with this as we wrap up today, as our anchor story is, This is exactly what I said we need in the education system, but I'm not talking about this specific thing in of itself. There is nothing that provides better solutions for more people than a free market. I, I, I don't think there's very many people who, unless you're completely indoctrinated in the existing government school system, of uh, the concept of some things are public good and they need to be all uniform. And, like, unless you believe that bullshit, if you have any value whatsoever for the fact that you can go to the damn store and pick your brand of breakfast cereal, if you, if you go at least that far, then I don't think that anybody out there can really make a case against the statement I just made. There is no better solution to any given problem than a free market addressing that solution. And the reason is because that free market will come up with the single best solution and everybody will use it. That's the state. We take and the, the state, anybody that's honest from that position, 
honest and informed and not stupid, so that's a trifecta that's kind of crazy, um, would have to say, well, of course, the public education system isn't the best solution for everybody. It's the best one we can come up with that we can run from the state level for the most people who are forced into it. <laughs> That's what it is. That doesn't sound very good to me. But just like you and I might have different opinions about a vehicle. I know some of y'all hate Fords. I don't know what's wrong with you. I don't really care that you hate Fords. You want to buy a Chevy. Okay, waste your money and buy a Chevy. I'm okay with that. And actually, I don't even hate Chevys. I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here because I own a Ford. You know, I had when I had a Dodge, I had a Dodge and a Ford. And people say about the Dodge, I had six of them, and every one of them was a piece of crap. Well, why'd you buy six? I mean, you said, but in the end, if you don't like a Dodge, you don't buy a Dodge. Isn't it great that I can drive my old Ford F-350, and you can go out and spend $80,000 if you want to on a brand-new Chevy diesel? Isn't that great that we both can make that decision for ourselves? And isn't it really great that other people go, I don't want a truck? And they go out and they buy, a, I don't know, if we're in the Chevy world, do they still make Malibus a Malibu? Or someone goes out and buys a Corolla. Or someone goes out and buys a Corvette. Or someone goes out and buys a Tesla. Isn't it great that we live in a world where we can do that? Now, if we're going to apply that much option, that much diversity, that much variance, so that we can simply choose... The metal thing with rubber wheels that we get inside when we want to go somewhere or move something. How do we ever think that we're going to have the best solution, or even a really good solution, by making one option the de facto mandatory choice when it comes to educating people who are drastically different? Every individual is drastically different. The most encouraging thing I heard there is, so I got a person, young young person, comes into my friend of the school system, and I test them to see, like, well, where are you at? And mathematically, they're at a third grade level. Everything else, they're at a sixth grade level. Well, we'll teach sixth grade level stuff to them and everywhere else, and we're going to teach third grade level mathematics to them. How will they ever get better? Well, maybe if we actually taught them third grade mathematics, they could move to fourth grade mathematics. See, kids in our system, once they, once they get passed up by that grade-based system, due to an age, but they had enough to get through and past, they'll never get caught up. They can't. Because you're teaching using fundamentals that they don't know yet. See, that makes perfect sense to me. Let's say that someone came to me and said, Jack, I want you to teach me martial arts. And I said, well, we'll start at the black belt level because you're 25. Doesn't that sound stupid? Doesn't that sound stupid? Well, I've never taken any martial arts or even like boxing or wrestling or anything in my life. I, I literally don't know how to throw a punch. But yeah, you're 25. We start 25-year-olds at the... Do you see how dumb that is? I mean, you've been walking around. You had your arms and legs work. Yeah, okay, well, yeah. We'll start you at the black belt level. Come over here. Let me show you a throw. Thump to the ground. Okay, now you get up and do it to me. But I'm going to defend myself because you're at the black belt level. Don't you think that's exactly how some of our children feel in the school system? When the teacher's saying, solve for X, and they're sitting up there at the front of the chalkboard with their hands shaking, and they have, they have no idea what they're even looking at because they've been lost for two years, but somehow they managed to just fumble through or be sifted through. 
Now, does that mean that this is the right thing for everyone? Well, we've got to start off with how much does it cost? Because sometimes things are really good, but not everybody can afford them. Guess what? Welcome to the real world. You want a Corvette? Well, you can get like a 70s model one in pretty nice shape for about 10 grand. But if you want a brand new Corvette, you know, you're throwing six figures maybe. So you have to choose. Is a brand new Corvette a better car than a Malibu? Yeah. But both of them get you where you're going. Right? And what do you need for where you're going? See, that's how we address education. And that's why I'm excited about solutions like this. It's not the individual solution by itself. It's the concept of what if we let everybody that has an idea market the idea freely, free of state compulsory nonsense and theft, and let parents and, and students decide what works best for them, and let the merits of the system produce results that were measurable, and then future generations could make decisions based on them. And people say, but what about the children that get a terrible education? I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked that. What about them? Right now. What about the millions of children who are being failed by the current system? What about them? What solution do you have for them? You don't have, unless you agree that making this type of thing far less restricted and opening it up and letting everybody see what they can come up with, then you have no answer to that question. You don't have an answer. Your answer is, screw them. Screw them. They should try harder. Again, when people say that, don't to hell with me. I'm a mediocre martial artist. Let's go get you assuming you don't know anything about martial arts, and replace it with a different skill and a different individual. And then let's go get Chuck Norris at his prime. At his prime. When he was PKA middleweight champion. And let's take you, and you're going to learn martial arts from Chuck Norris at his PAK middleweight title prime. But instead of him saying, oh, you don't know anything, he just starts beating the living F out of you. And tells you, try harder, learn. That's what we do to our kids in our school system today. Oh, while a bunch of other shit-throwing monkeys are picking on you, mocking you, and beating you. That would be the other students in the school. All little pricks and prickettes that actually bully people. How well would you do? How much would it matter if you tried harder in that situation? Welcome to the state-run education system in America and most developed economy, developed nations today. That's what you have. Prenda may not be perfect, but I think it's a hell of a lot better of a solution for a lot of people. And I, again, I don't care about Prenda so much individually. I want to know, what could we really do if we stopped forcing the state's will on how education looks at all? Zero influence. No compulsion whatsoever. They don't get to steal money. The people get to decide how, even if you're going to steal the money, you steal the money and you say, we have stolen on behalf of your child $15,000. Great. Glad you stole it for me. Let me spend it on the educational path that I think makes the most sense for them. 
but then they'll just spend it on themselves. Come on, right? If you can't manage that, you can't manage the education of children. I'm just saying. Anyway, I'll let it go for there today. And I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. As we wrap things up, let me remind you, one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. When you're exercising your free market decisions and buying stuff, you can just exercise a decision to go to tspaz.com first, and you can help us. It won't cost you any more money. You also see all the great stuff I recommend. If it's on T-SPAS, I own it, I use it, I spent my money on it, and I'd do it again or I wouldn't recommend it to you. Today I have a product for those of you that are playing around like I am with hydroponics. And it is called Rapid Rooter Plant Starter Plugs. These things are amazing. You're, 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 honestly, you're going to have to go look at the post today at thesurvivalpodcast.com or go to tspaz.com, look at the most current ones, to see what I did with these things. I grew a bunch of stuff. But in the post, I have two tomato plants. They are about eight inches tall. The stalks are about as thick as, as my index finger. And they have blossoms on them. And they have roots that are longer than the plant is tall. That's not that big a deal for tomatoes, is it? What would you say if I told you that picture is from 25 days after I started seed? Using hydroponics and these grow plugs, that's what I did. I've got pictures to prove it and if anybody doubts my timeline you can go look at when i built the seed starting system and the first video there's nothing in it it's empty and that from today is only 27 days ago so it's, it's just not i have not had the time to take more than 25 days to grow these plants and the pictures from saturday right so i mean it's just there it is it's right in front of you now i will say this about these grow plugs They're a little expensive compared to some other options like rock wool or using reusable Lika, which is like the pebbles or whatever. But I wanted an easy button, and I wanted a baseline with my projects, and then I can try other things. And if I find something that works as good, I know it works as good. And if it doesn't work as good, I know what the variable is. Well, I switched. It works with this, and it didn't work with that. Also, I'll tell you my experience with these and then looking at reviews online and all. Hydro, when people do it perfectly, They get very, very specific. Their pH is exactly, you know, 6.2. And their parts per million is exactly 600 for starts and then 1,100 for grow. And they maintain that precisely. And I think with things like rock wool, being at least close to that precision is a hell of a lot more important than something like these. These seem a lot more forgiving. I've just seen people do better. So... That's what I'm using, and I got a bunch of stuff going on. The seed starting system is just, it's working gangbusters. I put about 80 plants in the ground out in my, my gardens. I've got some tunnel covers and stuff that I'm going to be giving you guys on T-SPAS soon as well. I've got them planted under there. Uh, a bunch of pock choy, baby purple pock choy, celtis, all kinds of stuff we've been talking about lately. Everything worked beautifully except celery. I only got two of those in Germany. I've all, celery hates me. But I've just found these things work really good. I got another big announcement, and more will be coming on this soon. I will be speaking in Belton, Texas, at the Mother Earth News Fair in February. And this indoor hydroponics farm, I've got all the parts now. I'm going to start building it out this week. will be there with me in a booth where you can come look at the indoor hydroponics farm that I've been talking about building. Designed to put significant food on the table every week, week after week, all season long. And the reason I know it'll work For a couple things, one is the Barina Lice, but these dadgone plugs. I've already had some pushback on how, you know, they're not at economical. They're 30 cents a piece. So what does it cost to buy a nice, beautiful baby pock choy, especially a purple one that's beyond organic, that's immediately fresh, which you can't even buy? 
it's more than 30 cents. So I, if you're growing plants for starts, like tomato plants, pepper plants, you can put in your garden, it's not even close. And I do think there's lower-cost options, and I'll work on them. But if you want an easy button, if you want something that as long as you're halfway there, and read my article and follow my process that's on my, my videos that are free, these things, I mean, I've never seen anything root like this in my life. In fact, I had to alter the net cups. I had to alter the net cups because when you do starts in them, the way the net cups are made, you can't pull it out without tearing the roots off. So I have a little video out today, too, as well, showing how to alter the net cups. Anyway, check these out. Remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. But check the, check out the pictures of this 25-day plants. Usually you start tomatoes six to eight weeks, is what they say, six to eight weeks. Most people that are smart know eight weeks is a little too long. But, you know, six weeks is pretty standard. You count back from the day you want to put them out, and you go six weeks. I'm telling you, three is more than enough here. These look better than most of the plants you'll buy at a garden center. And from seed, little grow lights, whole system I set up is 100 bucks. These grow plugs, 15 bucks for 50. One thing about that, this is one of those items on Amazon. It's just stupid. It doesn't make any sense, but they do it. Um, if you get a two-pack, a three-pack, a four-pack, whatever, it's all stupid expensive. But one pack is 15 bucks. so if you need four packs, you want 200 them, get quantity four. Don't get a four-pack. It's something like, a, you know, instead of being like $60, it's something like $120. It's that stupid. So just be aware that happens sometimes. And, again, check the videos out and what have you. Time for our Song of the Day now. Song of the Day now is uh, by Bruce Springsteen. This is from 1992. And just in my head, this song feels older than this. But it's called 57 Channels and Nothing's On. And I remember this song really well because I think this hit a chord with so many people that felt the same way. Like today we have like, what, 200, 300 cable channels or more. Um, but around the early 90s, like, you know, 50, 60 channel cable lineup was a pretty big lineup. Uh, what Springsteen said about this song was it was really about how just having a lot of stuff didn't necessarily make you happy. But I think it, it, it was successful because it hit a chord with people who felt exactly this way. I just got all these great cable channels and it's still TV still sucks. The other thing is there's a lot of uh, Elvis Presley influence in this. And the song facts write up about this. It says the Springsteen was actually arrested in the 70s. He jumped a fence at Graceland and tried to storm the Graceland house. And when security caught him, he told him he was Bruce Springsteen and they either didn't believe him or didn't give a shit and threw his ass out. But if you listen to the whole song, it's kind of one of those songs that Bruce Moore talks in than sings in. And it's got a very Elvis-like sound. I don't mean Elvis's music. I mean, thinking of Elvis talking. It's got that Elvis sound to it. It talks about shooting a TV. For the record, the myth you heard that Elvis shot a TV is not a myth. Elvis shot a TV. I believe Robert Goulet was on it at the time. He actually liked him, though. It was either Robert Goulet or somebody else liked that. And, and it wasn't anything like he hated the guy. And then one reason or another, he was pissed off. He shot his TV set. I think that TV's still on display at Graceland, by the way. Well, this song ends up with the guy getting a 44 Magnum and shooting the TV out of frustration. And it's just kind of fun. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I bought a bourgeois house in the Hollywood Hills With a trunk load of $100,000 bills Man came by to hook up my 
cable TV, we settled in for the night, my baby and me. We switched round and round till half past dawn. There was 57 channels and nothing on. 57 channels and nothing on. 57 channels and nothing on. Well, now, home entertainment was my baby's wish, so I hopped to town for a satellite dish. Tied it to the top of my Japanese car I came home when I pointed out into the stars A message came back from the great beyond There's 57 channels and nothing on 57 channels and nothing on 57 channels and nothing on Well, we might have made some friends with some billionaires Got all nice and friendly if we made it upstairs. All I got was a note said bye bye, John. I love 57 channels and nothing on. So I bought a 44 Magnum with solid steel cast. And in the blessed name of Elvis, well, I just let it blast. To my TV laying pieces there at my feet. And it busted me for disturbing the almighty Judge said what you got in your defense, son. Fifty-seven channels and nothing on. 